Good morning. This is Dan from KFUO Radio. We now take you to a live Bible study already in session from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Different from even yesterday morning. So today we are in the third chapter of 2 Timothy. And so last week we talked about a lot of a lot of different things uh, as we move through this pastoral epistle, a worker approved by God talking about not quarreling about words uh, and, and Paul writing about teaching against those who said the resurrection has already happened. There's a lot of things we, we went through in that chapter. And so coming to chapter three, it's not a terribly long chapter, but man, there's a whole lot here. Paul really uses his words well. And so we're going to start marching through this, uh, and, and we'll pause, and at any time you have a question, a comment, an insight, just raise your hand, I'll bring the microphone to you. So chapter 3, it opens up, uh, and in your ESV Bible, you, you see this um, heading on there, godlessness in the last days. And so verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, and so, this is, this is uh, fun. As soon as I saw that, I said, there's going to be some questions that come up about last times, because whenever, whenever we talk about end times or Jesus' return, that just creates a lot of discussion. And so, I, I just I want to start out here, um, and he is talking about the last times, and when he says to Timothy, but understand this, the word that he uses there is not really one that points towards just an academic or a cerebral understanding of things. It's, it's a, something that he needs to understand or really take in as an experience in his, in his life. And actually, uh, Lenski on this word uh, writes, Paul doesn't use the verb hoida, which means to know intellectually, but employs gnosko, which means to know as something that affects Timothy and toward, he, and toward which he must assume a personal attitude. So this is not just something that he needs to learn about, but something that he needs to really get in his very being because it's something that he is going to be going through in the last days. So there's a lot of different interpretations of last days. When you bring up this word, a lot of people, we go right to Revelation 20, the first six verses of that chapter, and we really want to unpack what's going on there. That's, that's a huge task to undertake. And if you want to read something that's really excellently or really well written on that, uh, Lewis Brighton's Revelation commentary uh, there's an excursus on the millennium. It starts at page 533 in the commentary, and it's about 11 pages long. It's a really great read. Um, in fact, I reread it this morning because I just felt like it was a good practice. So the last days, there's a couple of different views, and I'm not going to go into great depth on them, but I did want to at least introduce them as we work through this because it's going to help us understand what Paul is saying to Timothy as we move through these verses. Uh, and to make sure that I don't misspeak, I'm going to open up my notes on this right here. So there's a, there's a few different views that have come up. Early on, there was this view of premillennialism, which meant that Jesus is going to come here. He's going to set up an earthly reign for a thousand years right here, not in St. Louis, but on earth, right? 
and that Satan is going to be bound during this time, earth is going to be paradise. It's going to be a great place for those thousand years. And at the end of those thousand years, Satan is going to be released. There's going to be a final battle and then judgment. And so there was a variety of early church fathers that kind of looked at this. Uh, Justin Martyr would be, uh, I think, the first one that we have record of. And so there was this, this kind of view of a literalistic thousand-year reign that was going to happen. Now, something that we're more familiar with with this thousand-year reign is something called dispensationalism, and that's much more common today, although you're, you might not have heard the word that, the word dispensationalism, you probably have heard of the rapture. I don't think, I don't think that's a very foreign term to us today, and so the rapture is a part of what we call premillennial dispensationalism, and so this this viewpoint says that there are seven dispensations or seven time periods of the earth and each one God interacts with his people in a little bit different ways. And it says that right now we're currently in time period number six and each of these is allegedly a thousand year period. So this ends, this dispensation ends when Jesus comes back on the down low. He comes back secretly and raptures away the church or Christians, at which time then God's wrath is released on creation. The church has been taken away. God's wrath gets released on, on creation for seven years, and that's called the tribulation. And during this time, the Jews search the scriptures, they convert to Christianity, and then Jesus returns in glory, and at this point in time, he binds Satan, he reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years, and then Satan has his last chance, there's this epic battle, and then judgment. Um, and so that's what really, when someone talks about the rapture, that's kind of what that looks like, uh, and that actually has its roots in Jewish culture and history, there's a, a rabbinic tradition that talks about there being essentially these time periods on earth, uh, and so kind of predicting out when those last days will come. But that's another one of those views um, that's out there, and it's attaching some very literal numbers and time periods uh, to what's being spoken about in Revelation. And then, finally, post-millennialism. So those have both been pre-millennialism. This is post-millennialism, which means that the church is going to be the ones that essentially, I don't want to say recapture culture, but God is going to work through the church uh, to kind of win back the world and establish this thousand-year reign of peace on earth. Um, and at the end, then Jesus comes back. Then there's this final battle with Satan and judgment. And so that's a lot. There's a, there's a lot going on all, in all of those. Um, but the biggest, probably one of the, the, the largest struggles that we have with this is how we look at the book of Revelation. And that's not what we're studying today, so I don't want to spend tons of time on it, but I think it's important that 
as we look at the book of Revelation, as we look at that apocalyptic literature, it's not literal. Like the numbers there are not necessarily literal. Um, And so when we try to attach very specific numbers to that and attach that to events in our own life, or when we try to look at the signs in Revelation and attach those to very specific events in our time or in history, we run into a lot of trouble. The other thing that this does, um, especially post-millennialism, but all of them, it, it, it takes Christ out of the center of the picture. Right? When, in post-millennialism, we, we kind of eliminate some of the issues that we have with extra-biblical teachings about tribulation and things like that, but then it says that you and I have to be the ones to establish the reign of peace here on earth before Jesus is going to come back. And I don't know about you, but I just don't see that happening. Across all the ages of time, since Jesus was here on earth, the church has done some amazing ministry. The church has also made a lot of mistakes. We've not really, we've not really won the world over. We have we have evangelized and we have witnessed and the Holy Spirit has brought people into our midst and it's been a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful period of time. It really has. But at the same time, relying on ourselves, we just mess things up worse and worse. And so even the post-millennialism creates, creates some problems because it puts us at the center of the picture. And really, this is all, all of this argument is based on six verses in Revelation 20. There's a whole lot of scripture out there that, that tells us about Jesus and his redemptive work for us. And so that's where we fall in the Lutheran church. When we talk about the end times, we look at the millennium as not a literal period of time. There's a couple other spots in the Bible that talk about thou, this number thousand. And each time it's one of those ones Imagine when you, when you tell your kids, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Well, I haven't told my kids a thousand times. It's probably been 5,000. But I'm not meaning it literally. It's an exaggeration. And so what we look at this, this millennial language as is everything from the consummation of Christ's redemptive work. So Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. And that's really important as we look at these, these verses in 2 Timothy because it shows that we're actually in that period now. We don't know when that's going to end except for that Jesus is going to come back. But we know that when Jesus comes back, creation is going to know it. He's not going to slide in under the radar and snag a few people that are the, the true believers and then go hide for seven years and come back in a second second, second coming in glory, right? Uh, and so we look at it, we, we, that's called amillennialism. Those are the big, you got all the $5 words early, early in Bible study today. Um, but we look at it in a non-literal sense that between Christ's redemptive work and his return in glory, that is the end times. So we are in the end times. And so with that, I hesitate to ask question, ask for questions, but I'm going to anyways before I step forward. 
Are there any questions or comments? All right, coming to you. I have more of a comment. Is when you look at all the ta- things that the scripture talks about that's going to happen, have we not already seen them a thousand in quotes times throughout history? And you're saying, okay, if you're saying it's going to be a set period of time, Throughout Scripture, Christ says, and the prophets all say, this is going to happen. And you see time and time again where this has already happened. Right. And it's going to continue to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, we have. We've seen, a, we've seen these things happen. As we go through this list in Second Timothy, we're going to find that Timothy could have said, oh, yeah, I see all these things going on. And then, you know... Augustine, a few hundred years later, could say, oh yeah, I see all these things going on. Luther, whoever it is, whatever Christian it is throughout time, could say, oh yeah. And at the same time as we do that, it also helps us to not look too hard through rose-colored glasses at history, and we say, oh wait, in every age along the way, people have been messing things up. It's interesting that those who propose these millennialistic views are also those who say, if we would just stop arguing about things like the Lord's Supper and baptism, mm-hmm. we'd get a lot further in this endeavor. Yeah. So it's awful, often accompanied with what is known as gospel reductionism. If we just get yes. some basic message out there, then we'll make headway, and right. they want us to compromise on our yeah. confession or belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, often, oftentimes this is commingled with things that would um, be gospel reductionism, having us trade in other aspects of God's word to make things fit because they get uncomfortable for us. Um, there's something uncomfortable about admitting that we're in the last days and that any time Jesus could return. At the same time, for those of us in Christ, Knowing that we're in the last days and that Jesus could come back at any time is incredibly comforting Um, to say we could be here in Bible study and Jesus could return and make all things new and that'd be okay with me. But that's not comforting to everyone. Um, And so any other comments on end times before we move forward? All right, good. Excellent. So, um, so verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Uh, I think it's interesting. This is just something I like. The word that's used for time is there can also be translated seasons of difficulty. Uh, and I really, I don't, I'm not sure how the word seasons lands in your own mind as you hear it, but I really like to use the word seasons for times of life or periods of life, uh, seasons of ministry, seasons of life. I think it, it shapes it nicely because there is actual, actually a created flow that God has put in to creation. Um, and growing up in Florida, it was a little bit harder to see, but here in Missouri, where you actually have a fall and a winter and a spring and a summer, you can see that created flow. And so 
uh, as I hear things like this, knowing that that word can be translated as seasons, um, it, it helps my mind wrap around what Paul is getting at, is that there's going to be seasons of these things. Verse 2, here we get to the list. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Um, there's a whole list. And if we go through this list and we look at all of, these, all of these items on the list, do we find that today? You bet. I mean, you can go through here and, and you can see this all over the place. And it's not something that's new. This is something that, that Paul is pointing out here. And I think there's, there's a switch in the tense that he uses. Right now he's speaking kind of in a future tense um, about will come. Um, but the way this list starts, I think, really kind of wraps up, wraps it up very neatly. Uh, and there's a, a commentator that wrote this. The first two lovers of themselves and lovers of money, supply the key to the rest of the list. Moral corruption follows from love falsely directed. Self-centeredness and material advantages, when they become the chief objects of affection, destroy all moral values, and the subsequent list of vices is their natural fruit. Um, I, really, I really like that quote because we talk a lot about the fruit of the Spirit, um, and then to think of these things when I'm a lover of self, when I'm putting myself first, when I'm at the center, the, there is fruit of that also. It just might not be fruit that I want to see in my life, um, but it naturally flows from that um, because when, you, when, when we describe someone that's proud or arrogant, we probably would say that person loves themselves. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, any of these things, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, all of the things in this list are things uh, that follow out of that. And so, Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. Um, now, this is not a call by Paul to cloister ourselves in the church, build walls, and never interact with the people of this world. Uh, sometimes in Christianity, we've taken some of these things to say, okay, well, if I'm not supposed to, if, if Paul says, avoid such people, well, gosh, well, avoid means I never should be mixing with them. <laughs> and so we, we build walls, we we have monk cells, we, we brew really good ale and garden well. Um, and while there's nothing wrong with gardening well and, and, and brewing ale and monasteries in one sense, when you lock yourself off 
and you're not actually out there witnessing in the world, that is a problem. Um, And so as we read this list, what we should take from this is, I'm not going to go and set up my tent and camp out in the midst of that. But as I go about my daily life fulfilling my vocations and God places people in my life that might be prideful or arrogant or love themselves, I can still witness to them. I can still interact with them. I can still work with them. But I'm probably not going, uh, I'm not going to set up my camp right in the midst of them. And this is a problem right here uh, for Timothy in the first century. And so next we have, we have a couple of verses here that are uh, a kind of interesting. So we're just going to go through six and seven. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Interesting statement. Um, creep into households. Uh, and capture weak women. And so the idea here is not that, that these women are unintelligent or foolish. Uh, instead, what it is, their consciences are heavy, they've burdened with things, and these false teachers that are in the church are preying on them. Um, and so the truth has been so corrupted by these false teachers that these women that he's talking about, this specific situation, whatever it is, that the gospel has been so corrupted by these false teachers that they can't even see the truth anymore. They can't even, they can't even recognize the truth. Um, and that's something that was a, a problem then, and it's a problem now for us too. And he uses some really strong language. Uh, I had to look these guys up because... I read their names and I was like, who is that? Uh, just as it'd be Yannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And so these two, we don't know if it's actually their names or not, but according to, to rabbinic tradition, these are the two sorcerers of Pharaoh, that when Moses went in and was performing signs for Pharaoh, allegedly these are the names of the sorcerers that were performing signs for Pharaoh. So they were the ones that were, that were essentially representing a false god, um, and so, or a counterfeit god, however you want to say that. Uh, and so Paul's comparing these false teachers to these two guys from Exodus that were really, 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 really bad that are not kindly looked upon uh, in Jewish and Jewish uh, tradition. And so he says they're disqualified regarding the faith. These, these men that are corrupting the gospel, these men that are not uh, what we would say orthodox, teaching what is right about the scriptures, they are disqualified and they're no good. But is Timothy to worry himself about that a whole lot? Verse 9. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Um, 
I want to pause here for a moment on this uh, because sometimes when, when things happen, we let, whether it's the media or culture or whatever it is, drive the narrative. And that's dangerous for us as Christians, um, as in all things, we keep Christ at the center. We proclaim Christ crucified. And when we get off that track, even with good intentions, that is problematic for us. Uh, and Paul is telling Timothy, these guys are off track. You don't you need to be aware of them. You need to not be interacting with these guys. But don't worry. The false gospel that they're proclaiming is going to be exposed. Uh, and so, as I, as I think about this, I think about some of, especially in our own current cultural context, the prosperity gospel preachers. Sometimes we get, I, I used to, I remember in seminary I had to, to listen to and evaluate a sermon from a very well-known and wealthy prosperity gospel preacher. And I, I went home to Jessica and I was like, this is awful. I've never heard when someone string together so many different phrases from Scripture in such a horribly, horribly poor way to say exactly what they wanted the Bible to say instead of what God had intended. And I got like all in this like huffy puffy, like, what do we do about this? Truth be told, little Lawton Thompson can really do nothing about that on the grand stage, all I can do is proclaim the gospel rightly. And that's what God has called us to do. And sometimes when we let culture drive the narrative, whether it's about prosperity gospel or something else, I mean, we should be involved voting and participating in things, but we can't let that drive what we're doing. It is the gospel. It is the beauty of what Christ has done for us that drives us. And as with everything else, rarely on social media or on a national platform is someone's mind changed by some well-thought-out argument. More often than not, the Holy Spirit works in that still small voice as we're building relationships with someone and having a cup of coffee and talking about life and talking about those hard things in God's Word. When they know that I actually care about them as a person, and I'm not just shouting at them because I have some different viewpoint. Um, and like I said, that doesn't mean that we don't involve ourselves with, with those issues. But we do so with Christian love and respect, and we engage in those things focused on proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Because that's, the Holy Spirit works to change hearts and as we witness to that fact, hearts are changed. Um, and so, I get really passionate about that part. Also because I love coffee. So, if you want to have coffee and talk about the hard things in the Scripture, we'll go meet down at Daily Bread. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Um, and you guys on the radio, too, if you're close by, come on over. Um, but Paul tells Timothy, don't sweat these two guys too much because what they are saying is going to be made plain. And we see that time and time again uh, with people that pervert the gospel, eventually they get exposed. 
eventually something happens and, and, and people know. And so let's just focus on Jesus. Sound good? Any comments on that before I move on? Yeah. I understand what you said, but it seems like when you read that, the folly will be plain to all in the situations we're living in today. That just does not seem to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so I, I, the, the comment was the, the plain to all. God works on his own timeline. And so what does that look like for, for someone to be exposed as a false teacher or for something to come and be plain to all? Um, I think that we have to rest in God working through all of those things and his timeline is different from ours. Uh, because there are going to be people when Jesus returns that still are buying into the folly of false teachers. Um, there are still going to be time, there's still going to be people that don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is or did what he said he did or what the scripture witnessed to when Jesus returns. And they're going to go, uh-oh, it was true. And so, so when we read that, I think we have to rest in the fact that God's timing is different from our own and that those things will be exposed as he sees fit. Um, and now that, doesn't, now, that doesn't mean that you can't be in a situation where you're in a relationship with someone and they're teaching false doctrine and you say, hey, man, that's not right. <laughs> you probably shouldn't be saying that. Um, and I mean, that's actually one of the beautiful things in our church body. We have these things called circuits. And so here where we're at in De Pere, we're in a circuit with Village Ladue, Concordia Kirkwood, Glendale, Prince of Peace, um, Mount Calvary, and Lutheran Church of Webster Guards. And so we get together and we talk about ministry and we talk about how things are going. And we're also there to be checks and balances on each other. So if someone, if one of the pastors was to start going astray, that other pastor can go, hey, you're getting a little off track here. Let's talk about this. Um, so there is the opportunity to, to call that false teaching out, but we can't let that drive everything we're doing. God presents those opportunities to us. Um, and it's good, it is good to to teach the right thing and make some of those comparisons, right? As I mentioned prosperity gospel a little while ago, that's a good thing to say. When you hear this, that's not true to the gospel. Instead, pay attention to this. Um, but keeping the centrality of Christ in all things. Does that answer your question? All right, anything else? No? All right. I really, I was, I was, had the urge to talk a little more philosophy here this morning because this is all very triumph of the individual stuff, but I'm not going to go down that road. Um, so we come to the close of this chapter, these last few verses here. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's the heading you have in there. So Verse 10 starts, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that 
that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And so this is kind of an emphatic statement from Paul as he says, you, however, Timothy, you have followed my teaching. Um, he's, he's saying, Timothy, good job. You have been following and staying true to the gospel and all of these things, um, teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, all the way down to persecutions. And this kind of brings up that conversation we've had before about, about suffering before glory, right? About when we come to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that life is going to be sunshine and roses. People oppose the gospel. Um, and so he, I, he identifies three different specific situations of persecution here. One in, in Antioch, this is Pisidian Antioch, so it's kind of in the middle of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And Paul goes there, he's with Barnabas, and they go to the synagogue. They always go to the synagogue first. If there's a synagogue there and they get permission, the synagogue, the, the leaders are like, yeah, you should, you should teach here. So they start teaching, and suddenly they gain a following. Um, but not all of the Jews are on board with it, and so they go outside and they're teaching, and then the Jewish leaders of Pisidian Antioch get really bent out of shape. And so they run them out of town, and so they head down the road. It's about 90 miles from there to the east, southeast, to Iconium. Lather, rinse, repeat. I mean, it's like the same thing happens there. They hear of a plot to stone them, so they escape outside the city um, and move on, and then they go south from there to Lystra, which is about 25 or so miles south, so we're all still kind of in Turkey. This is on Paul's first missionary journey that these things happen. Um, the difference being at Lystra, there's no synagogue in Lystra, so they go and they just, they get there, and they heal somebody. And what happens in, in all of these accounts, whether it's in the Gospels or in Acts, when somebody gets healed? What is the response of the people? They get super excited. They get really energetic. They're like, something amazing is happening here. Um, it makes me think of the little boy in the movie Incredibles when he's standing in the dry, or sitting on his tricycle in the driveway waiting for Mr. Incredible to do something amazing and incredible. But they get really excited. And then the Jewish leaders from Antioch and from Iconium follow them to Lystra and stone Paul. They stone Paul so badly that they actually think he's dead, and they drag him outside the city, and then he recovers and goes on. So he's, he's saying, like, I, basically, I was almost killed for the gospel, and you have, you, know, you have followed me, my persecutions, my suffering that have happened to me, and I've endured them all, or I, what I have endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And so... He gives that credit time and time again to God for all of these things. It's not that I was witty enough to avoid the stoning at Iconium and got away from it, but man, they just got me at Lystra. It was, no, God rescued me from these things. Even though they basically thought I was dead in Lystra, God rescued me from that. He has kept me alive to continue to proclaim the gospel. And, and it should be ever in our minds that he's writing this letter from prison, knowing that death is near. Paul knows that the end of his time is near. So this is, 
This is not something that he's writing uh, from a comfortable, you know, comfortable place somewhere. He knows that death is near. And so verse 12 goes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, and that just highlights that suffering before glory. The gospel is offensive to people because it doesn't make sense that what Christ has done for me is sufficient for my needs of salvation. Because it takes me out of the center of the picture. I don't have a part to play. I just get to stand here and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And so for those of us that are in the faith, that the Holy Spirit has worked faith in our hearts, that's a beautiful statement. Because we, we don't have to lean on our own understanding. We don't have to lean on our works and, and look at some scale of justice to say, did I do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff and never have certainty? Instead, we can say, no, the redemptive work of Christ was enough. He did everything on my, ha- on my behalf so that I can be called a son or a daughter of God. But to someone that that doesn't believe that Jesus is who he said he is or did what he said he did, that's highly offensive because we don't want to put someone else in the driver's seat. Even as Christians that believe in Jesus, we don't want to put somebody else in the driver's seat. We want to be there, right? It's the, it's the God is my co-pilot thing. I don't like that one. God is my pilot. I need him to fly the plane because I don't know how. If we were all on a plane together and I was in the pilot seat, we would be in a bad way, real bad way. So I'm going to keep him there. And so wherever that gospel is rightly preached, wherever those sacraments are administered properly, there's going to be opposition to the gospel. It's going to happen. And what we do as Christians is to continue to preach the gospel rightly and administer those sacraments properly, pointing everyone to Jesus and knowing that sometimes things are going to get rough. Um, and I don't want to compare any of the things that we're having happen to us in our current time here in West County or in America to what Paul was enduring um, because they pale in comparison to some of the, the physical things that he was enduring for the gospel. But it doesn't mean that those things won't come And when those things come, we keep pointing to Jesus. All right. Let's see. So 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here again, he talks about these imposters, these evil men going from bad to worse. They're just, they're buying into the lies that that have been hardened into their hearts. The devil has, has taken hold of them. They go from bad to worse. It's a thing. It's going to continue on, Timothy. But he exhorts and he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And he points to sacred writings. Um, and at this point in history, this is 
very early on in the early church. So what Paul is pointing out here is actually like the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament writings is what he's pointing to here. I love that. We take, we take the Old Testament as the inspired word of God because Jesus quoted it and, and Jesus was around to see it. And if it wasn't the word of God, he would have said something about it. He did not have a problem speaking his mind. But it reminds us in these words right here that that Old Testament, all of it, whether it's Numbers or Lamentations, whether it's the Psalms or Chronicles, is all pointing to Jesus. All of that, that beautiful, beautiful narrative of Old Testament Scripture is pointing us forward to Jesus, guiding us along that God's story of everything as his redemptive work takes place. And it's that that makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so, that's why that Old Testament is so important. Even, even some of the hard passages, whether it's something we just don't want to deal with or whether it's something that's just really hard to read, sometimes in the middle of some of those books it can be challenging, but every single piece of that paints this beautiful picture of God working through all history to get us to Jesus. And so Paul is telling Timothy here, remember that. Hold on to that. That is what the Holy Spirit used to make you acquainted with Jesus. Those sacred writings. And then, Verse 16 here, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, all scripture is God-breathed. It is the inspired, inerrant word of God. It is living, it is active in our lives. And it is what... We are made complete. It reveals to us God and Jesus and his redemptive work. All scripture, all scripture, that the man of God may be made complete. Um, as I read this, sometimes I think uh, to the bookstore, if you go into Barnes & Noble and you see there's the self-help section, and there's a self-help book for like everything under the sun, like anything you want. Look inside yourself, you can fix it. And we fall victim to that, right? Like we, it's, there's all of these help books and it could be something as silly as like, I've got a real problem with fungus on tomatoes in my garden. What do I do to fix it? That's a good thing. I should, I should deal with that, right? Um, probably has to do with the heat and the humidity. But there's all kinds of struggles that we have in our life whether it's interpersonally in our relationships, no matter what it is, where a lot of times culture and society around us wants to say, read this book, look deep inside yourself, and you're going to find the answer. It's going gonna, it's gonna to put it all together for you in a nice, neat little bubble. But if we look at God's Word and we say, this is the very living and active Word of God, and then we read a passage like this contained within God's word that says this is what makes the man of God complete. 
Because as we go through God's word, we realize that he doesn't say, hey, look inside yourself and find the answers for all the the brokenness in life. He says, look to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because kind of in accordance with the rest of this chapter, as Paul's painting this picture of the last things, things just get worse. Things don't ever, we, we move from order to chaos, not from chaos to order. And so if we look inside of ourselves for the answers to all the things, we only become more broken and bring more brokenness and chaos into the world. But when we look to God's word, when we look to Christ Jesus and what he's done for us, we recognize that we can't fix the broken, but we know who can, and we know who has fixed the broken in our lives and who ultimately will fix the broken one day down the road. And that is God's word making us complete, knowing our Lord and Savior and what he has done for us, equipping us for all of those good works. Again, we talked about it last week. As believers, we're set apart. I think there's, there's even a, a whole push right now in the synod set apart to serve, right? We are set apart to serve, whether it's in professional church work, whether it's an engineering firm, or wherever it's at, we are set apart to serve him and glorify him in all of those vocations. Um, And we are prepared and made ready to do that through God's word, through what he has revealed to us about himself there. All right, we just unpacked verses 10 through 17. Any comments, questions? All right. I'm glad. I just, I wanted you to ask a question. Sure you did. <laughs> uh, am I wrong in thinking that this is, uh, this is a pretty um, radical statement to, to put the order of wise for salvation through faith and before the equipped for every good work? Mm. I mean, I don't think anyone in this room that would be surprised from that, but yeah. overall, I feel like there's, there's something there that that so putting the wise for salvation before the equipped for every good work. Yeah? Okay. So surprise so, so you find that so you, you think that people may find that order surprising? Is that what I'm hearing you saying? Right. Yeah. So, so, being built up, being, let me read it here, all scripture, let's see, where was that? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, being made wise unto salvation, um, is not something that we necessarily do to ourselves, right? That's the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And so nothing that I do can be a good work if it's outside of faith in Christ Jesus. And so coming to faith, that being wise into salvation comes before any of those other things. As, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, as, as we bring that little baby to the baptismal font and there marked as one redeemed by Christ the crucified and faith has worked there. That happens 
And then we pour into the scriptures, we learn more, um, and we're prepared for those good works that he's put for us, but it has to be God being that first mover. Um, and, and that's really, it's a hard thing for us because we want to say, I am going to, I am going to study, I'm going to graph the scriptures, I'm going to look at all of these things and really get it, and then I'm going to be ready to go out there. And that can be a really dangerous way to look at it as Christians, um, just because we're never going to know it all. Jesus' disciples didn't know it all, they were still really confused, um, even as your pastors, there's parts of Scripture that we look at, and I'm like, if I have to teach on this tomorrow, we're going to be in trouble, because I need a few days to really, really wrestle with how to explain that to someone. And so, there's a, there's a little phrase, <clears throat> God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And so, he calls us to faith and then he equips us for what he sent us to do. And for, for some of us, that might be, I know, I know some guys in seminary that were really, really way smarter than me and would be excellent seminary professors. Um, I don't feel like that's me. I feel like God has, God has formed and shaped me through the scriptures, and I love teaching, and I love preaching, but I don't know about being a seminary prof one day. I also don't know German or Latin, so that hurts. But, um, but he equips the called for exactly what he has set forth for them to do. Those good works have been established beforehand, and he equips us for that. He prepares us for that. But not until we've been called. One more. I and mean, we have time. Well, and I think all of that made me think, it says, um, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I think a lot of times we try to find our completeness, our identity in our work and say, like, if I do this thing or if I, then I'll be complete. But we're complete mm -hmm. before any work gets right. done. That's the fruit. Right? Yes. Which, which brings us back to the, the quote at the beginning, right? The, the fruit of the evil being those vices, right? Or the, self, the fruit of loving self being those vices, but the fruit of faith being made complete in Christ, the fruit is all of those good works, those things that come out and flow from the Holy Spirit in us. Yeah. Because in and of ourselves, we're broken. Anything else? All right, you guys. Well, I know it's just a couple minutes early, but we're going to go ahead and close with prayer, and we'll be ready for 2 Timothy chapter 4 next week. All right. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us uh, the Scripture, Lord, for calling us to faith in you, for making us complete in you. We ask that as we go from here today, uh, through all of the, the trials that you have in store for us this week, that you would... Remind us to keep you at the center, that your gospel is what matters, Lord, the, the truth about what you and you've done for us, making us complete in you. Lord, I ask that you would watch our ways, that you would guide our steps, and that you would gather us back again in this place next week. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a 